Youth Theory is a Southern California lifestyle brand that is on mission to inspire wellness in all. With its line of high-quality, efficacious health and wellness supplements, Youth Theory has developed a product for every stage of life, whether you are looking to enhance your daily beauty routine with a high-quality collagen supplement or looking to enhance your immune system. You Theory has something right for you. From farm to retail shelf, You Theory is also committed to quality sourcing and best-in-class manufacturing practices, as well as giving back to the community. Learn more by visiting online at www.utheory.com. Mention code SAVVY20 and receive 20% off your order during the month of December 2020. Remember, December 2020 only. You Theory made it all for you. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy. My co-host Andrea is away today. I am very excited to have this fantastic woman back on the program. She was first on, I believe it was my NPR show, It's Your Health, years ago with her book, Manic. And Terry is back. Her book, Modern Madness, an owner's manual, is fantastic. Terry, you are always incredible, such a gifted writer and such an amazing person. So glad to have you on Naturally Savvy. How are you? Wow. Thank you, Lisa. One of the many things I loved about your book, Modern Madness, is that you start each chapter talking about a different type of mental illness, whether it be manic, hypomania, depression, And then you go into telling stories and then you talk about how you've dealt with things. And it's absolutely incredible. What's it like to be that candid? Well, I'm a little used to it now that I've already written two books. So it's a lot easier than it was with my first book, Manic. Uh, That was scary because I'd never told anybody about being bipolar before that came out. Just my doctors knew. I didn't tell friends, family, coworkers, nobody. Yeah. And you were in a pretty high powered job. I love the way you start this book in the introduction. I was sitting next to Michael Jackson, admiring his feet. That is, that is so great. What a hook. I'm like, wait, wait, what's going on with his feet? (laughs) I love that first line myself. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what was going on in your world at that time when you were admiring uh, Michael Jackson's feet. Well, I was admiring his feet, first of all, because they were so big and I couldn't believe he could dance like an angel on what looked like farm boy feet. So um, I was in a deposition with, I was an entertainment lawyer. So I was in a deposition with Michael and I had just not so recently uh, attempted suicide. So I bought this gorgeous white silk shirt with French cuffs before the deposition, the day before the deposition, so I could hide the scars. And I was so worried all during the deposition, not so much about the court proceeding, but about, you know, was anybody going to see my scars? I kept tugging at my cuffs. So it took a lot to get through um, being being in a high-profile job, struggling with a disease that I didn't tell anybody about. Yeah. And you write in the book, too, in the introduction, it took a whole lot of horrible things to bring me to true serious run ins with the law, immense amounts of alcohol, multiple suicide attempts, demolished relationships, financial ruin, mania's costly gift. It takes a lot, doesn't it? And you got it took, what, 10 years to get the right diagnosis? Yeah, it took it takes most people eight to 10 years to get the right diagnosis because mostly your doctors to see you when you're depressed because you don't go in when you're manic, you're feeling so high, euphoric. Why would you want to, you know, you don't need to be fixed. It's the last thing in the world you want. So 
you go in to see your doctor when you're depressed and they diagnose you as happened with me with major depression, which unfortunately you get an antidepressant and they can cause rapid cycling or mood cycling so they can trigger mania. It's the worst thing you can take all by itself. Uh, for bipolar disorder, you need to be on a mood stabilizer. So yeah, it's really, it's important to get the right diagnosis, but it takes a while to see how the disease plays out over time. How has it played out for you over time? I don't know if I've been lucky or this is just the way it's, it's happened with me, but I'm a rapid cycler, which means I can go up and down in a really short period of time, even within the course of a day. Some people that I know have months long episodes of mania or depression. And I just, I can't even imagine having to stick with it that long. So I can go, as I said, up and down pretty rapidly, which can be harder to treat because you're always chasing the illness. You know, you're always trying to medicate the last symptom. It's like chasing a comet's tail, but at least I don't have to stay depressed for months. I usually last about four days, my cycles. You know, one of the things that troubles me so deeply is the stigma attached with mental illness. And and I was so aggravated reading that chapter where you were talking about seeing that doctor that you called Dr. X. And he, you had to convince him, like, I'm on all these medic, I'm doing well because of these medications. Right. And he's like, well, he's like, what do you, oh my gosh, if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, this was a Beverly Hills doctor and uh, all the latest equipment and, you know, modern art on the walls and all that. But he looked, took one look at my list of medications and said, you don't need to be on all of these. You're a lawyer, you're high functioning, you know, this is, this is terrible. And I had to keep telling him, look, you don't want to see me off these medications. I've been, you know, I've tried to commit suicide. I've been hospitalized. It's not a pretty picture. And he said, but you're so articulate. And it, it just bugged the hell out of me. Like what, you know, if you're bipolar, that means you can't be articulate. It just ridiculous. I just don't understand stigma because if you think about it, mental illness is a brain dysfunction. It's a brain disease. And the brain is a three and a half pound organ. Robin Williams said that. Just like any other organ, like your liver or your pancreas, and you wouldn't tell someone with a malfunctioning liver to, to you know, just snap out of it or make lemonade out of lemons. Look on the bright side. It just, it's absurd. Yeah. I think there's a lot of judgment too around medication. Uh, you know, my daughter has something called NVLD, which actually Chris Rock just came out as having. So people are like, what's that? Just Google Chris Rock NVLD. I mean, that was very helpful because now when I talk about it, at least a few people have heard of it, but it's similar to autism spectrum, but uh, just some of the same challenges. And she has to be on a couple different medications and I'm in this natural world where people are like, Oh, but blah, 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 blah. What if you just tried this? Or what if you just, you know, no, you don't understand. It doesn't work like that. And it's very difficult. And I, I am a crunchy natural person, but I also am realistic and understand the, that sometimes your brain needs these things to work. Well, thank God for your daughter. That's that you. Yeah, I know. She, I yeah. So crazy when people tell me to just try this supplement from Whole Foods because it's natural. It's not a drug. I don't understand if it's meant to affect the processes of your brain. You know, it's a drug, people. 
<laughs> well, something I thought that was so interesting too in your book is you were talking about how aggravating it is as well when people are like, well, you know, studies show that exercise, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the thing. And you write this in the book. That's for moderate depression. When you can't even flip and get out from under your duvet, as you talk about in certain situations, that's not happening. I yeah. mean, so talk about that because I think, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of exercise, but people need to be educated when they're talking to people about yeah, these things and they're not, yeah, they're not, they're I'm morons. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes, it makes it very difficult. Um, I hear that a lot. Just, just exercise. It'll, you know, you'll get all this, this endorphin rush. And what people don't understand is that when you're really depressed, I at least get what's called psychomotor retardation, where my body and my will are just paralyzed. Like, I can't move. I just can't get my mind to make my body move. I'm looking at a pen right now that's about a foot away from me. And if I wanted to pick that up, if I were severely depressed, I'd have to just stare at it and stare at it for about 15 minutes before I could even just will my hand to go hopefully pick up the pen. It's exhausting, frustrating, and terrifying. And to have someone tell you, just go for a walk every day, you'll be cured. You know, it, they don't get it. And psychomotor retardation is something I've written about in my blog for psychology today. And I got the most response from any blog, because people said, um, God, I have that I didn't know it had a name. I didn't realize anybody else had that. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that just getting it out there as a term will help people to realize they're not alone. Yeah, I had heard, I didn't know the exact term, but I'd heard someone I know that a loved one I know who has depression kind of talk about that. And I didn't tell them to just go out and exercise. I was like, oh my God, that's horrible. So I don't know. I don't know. Where's the compassion? Let's talk about the manic cheat sheet. This what this is brilliant. You write, if you suspect you're getting manic, you probably are. You must, that's capitalized, obey these 10 sacred rules. I'm just going to read a few. Uh, number one, don't change into something sexier. Wear granny panties and flats. Uh, two, don't make friends with strangers. They're strangers. Three, don't drink anything but iced tea, Lipton's, not Long Island. Four, don't get naked except to shower alone and don't shave your legs. It's so funny because I struggled with um, like love and sex addiction when I was younger. And so I'm reading these going, wait, I think this sounds like this is for me. I really, uh, yeah, I was like, okay, like, no, just go out in your baggiest, sloppiest look and don't even try because you're going to get yourself into some situations. So, well, but yeah. When you're manic, you really, it's bizarre. You attract people to you. I don't know what happens if it's a pheromone or something you put out, but I can be in an elevator and people will just start talking to me or I will probably start talking to them and that's what happens. But you get very reckless sexually and you do things that you would never in a million do, years do if you were in your normal state of mind, which means hitting on a lot of people and being hit on. So it's, it's a, it's a precarious situation and you need to remember not to, uh, you know, that, that this happens to you. You forget when you're manic that you do get manic something just clicks off in your brain and you don't recognize it. Um, it's different when you're depressed, you know, you're depressed, but when you're manic now you're just feeling great and everybody is wrong. That's telling you something is off. And so having this list, has it helped you even just be like, wait a second, 
Because does the manicness sometimes be like, ah, forget the list, just put on some sexy heels, you know, or do you like, how do you balance that? I find it actually helps, but it's taken some time for it. And that, you know, okay, you're carrying around a list of what not to do because this has happened in the past. So there's a reason for it. You wouldn't just be carrying this around if, if it was a joyride, you know. The other thing too, I love this. Don't cut number eight. Don't cut your hair short. You are an Audrey Hepburn. Uh, don't quit your day job. Don't follow your bliss. Don't call or text or email. Another thing too, I think, I don't know if this is for you, but from a friend of mine who's bipolar, she said the spending would become a problem at times. Money was a tremendous problem for me. I spent every last penny in my savings and checking account on a splurge up the coast. I went to Big Sur and stayed at a place called the Post Ranch Inn, which is a five-star resort. It was fabulous. But I literally spent every dime I had. And that's when I finally came home was when I was out of money. So uh, yeah, spending money, just you don't have a concept of it when you're manic, except as something to make you feel better. And chase the high. So. Now, are you able to feel it coming on now at this point? Or does it like, talk to us about that? I do feel mania starting to come on. There's a, there's a stage that precedes it called hypomania, which is with it called little mania. Some people only get hypomanic and depressed and that's called bipolar two. But in bipolar one, you get the actual full flown, you know, full fledged um, mania. And I feel in hypomania, like I'm just on the top of the world. It's what people think of as mania. I feel euphoric, blissful, charismatic, um, charming. You know, the squirrels come and talk to me. I mean, it's just the greatest feeling in the world. Then it escalates into mania. And so you've got to kind of catch it at that spot before your judgment goes out the window which can be very hard to do and that's when family and friends come in because they'll tell me I think I wrote in Modern Madness you're talking like Minnie Mouse you know I can talk really fast and really high and they can tell by the way my speech is pressured and my ideas are just bouncing like a ping pong table off the wall you know um so they can see it. I can't necessarily see it. But if I have pe- enough people I trust tell me you're probably getting manic, I'll listen now. Well, jumping into depression, you write in the book, quote, the world gets very spooky when I'm on the verge of depression. It's like a carnival after hours full of half glimpsed terrors and half heard noises, evil vapors swirling in the air. That is terrifying. I for- like That really moved me. I was like, oh, my God, that's. I wow! I wrote that, and that is terrifying. It is really scary. You, I'm so sorry. It is. You see the world at its bleakest, and you know there are times I think you see the world more clearly when you're depressed. And maybe that's not such a good thing. Maybe we're not supposed to see the world that clearly because you really do. You think about death a lot. Um, Death is an omnipresent character in depression. Yeah, I feel like with just this whole year of 2020, Mm -hmm. I guess, I don't know if it's called 
circumstantial depression or situational or or maybe depression's too big of a word. I, I don't want to, you know, use a word that isn't proper, but I've definitely been down. No. It's- uh and I feel like there's this kind of weight over me. I'm still functioning, but I'm not quite myself. And I'm just yeah. feeling like ugh. Michelle Obama called it low grade depression. And you know, it's kind of strange for people with a diagnosis. I've heard from a lot of readers that say, I feel like I've been in training all my life for COVID-19, you know, because of depression, because I'm used to isolating and I'm used to binge watching Netflix and eating everything in the refrigerator. And um, so for some of us, it hasn't been all that different. That's what we go through on a daily basis, that anxiety, that fear of the future and, um, and I'm hoping that maybe because so many people are experiencing these states that never have before, that there might be a good thing to come out of COVID-19, which is there might be more compassion and awareness of just how essential mental health is to functioning on a daily basis, how precious it is, and how really terrible depression and anxiety are. I have this new mission that is that I've written about in Modern Madness for what to do when you're with people who are struggling, because a lot of us are suddenly faced with being quarantined with people who are going through a really rough time. What I tell people is try to just bite your tongue and not give advice, even though it's totally human nature. It's what you want to do. You want to fix it because you love the person. The best thing you can do is just to sit down with them and say five little words, tell me where it hurts. Tell me where it hurts. Open them up where advice will shut a person down, especially a child, and will make them feel judged and make them feel guilty that they're too depressed to do what you tell them to do or to, you know, just can't do it. And if you let them tell you where it hurts, they get some of that darkness and despair and anxiety out of them and into the open air where hopefully, you know, the darkness dissipates in the light somewhat. And it's it's really incredible. I've seen it happen over and over again that people get better and feel seen and loved and heard. And that's what we all want. You also have, you have a wonderful humor in the book. I mean, there's definitely some, like uh, when I was reading the manic cheat sheet, you also have uh, do's and don'ts. And this has to do with when you go off your meds and you're talking about, uh, you know, getting invited to a party. And I love this. You say, when the day of the party arrives, be wretchedly depressed and get greasy Chinese takeout instead. Show up morose and forget everyone's names, especially those people you've known forever. Have a glass of wine at dinner, even though your doctors forbid it because it destabilizes you. Have to get manic. <laughs> like, you got to have some humor, right? I mean, otherwise, I, yeah, it's tough. My favorite part of that list is when I uh, start alphabetizing the spices in my yes. cupboard and I stopped it <laughs> because I'm bored. Oh gosh, that is so funny. This book must have taken a long time. And because you have a lot of great stories in the book and you've got the great information about the different diagnoses in the book. Well, how long did this take? I mean, approximately. It took me about four years. Uh, it was, it started out 
I had these stories I wanted to tell, but I wasn't sure what format to put them in and how to link them together. And I was assembling a vacuum cleaner and I, it had all these bizarre and strange and scary looking attachments. And I thought I was poring over the owner's manual. I thought, God, wouldn't it be great if there was an owner's manual to mental illness? Because it is, it's scary and complex and frightening, just like these attachments are. And that's why I ended up um, organizing the book in sort of a familiar format that people could identify with. Like this, there are sections on troubleshooting and maintenance warranties. I thought it might make it more accessible. It definitely does. It's funny because I was about to go to that. I love that you have getting started and in the introduction, then you've got system overview where you cover mania, depression, hypomania, mixed state, rapid cycling, suicidality, uh, mind body connection. I I also have hypothyroid issues. I have Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease. Yeah. Uh, Although I do pretty well. I take my armor thyroid and I don't seem to have a lot of the symptoms, but my blood test keeps telling me I have it. So I'll just be grateful um, that I'm not feeling badly. Um, but at any rate, I, it's funny because you're thinking, why would you be glad? But when you have to go through all you've been through with mental health issues and the doctors and the, you know, the naysayers and the stigma, it, you're like, oh, okay, I got this physical thing. <laughs> I've walked around telling people I'm high, I've got hypothyroid, I've got hypothyroid and nobody. Nobody said a word that was stigmatic or, you know, it was just like, take your medication, you'll be fine. You know, it was a complete 100% opposite of what it's like to have a mental illness. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I was about to mention stigma, user precautions, stigma terms and definitions, and then instructions for you. So let's talk about relationships. I love this. Don't fix me. I'm not broken. That. I could see people being like, well, if I did this and I actually have a friend who has, uh, well, she says she had anorexia, um, but she still has some eating issues. And I, I always say to her, you know, I, I'm not trying to fix you, but I, I need you to find somebody a good therapist to help you because I can't keep hearing how fat you've gotten when you're a size four, you know, like there's this thing where I can't, I don't know what to do. The important thing is to, I use the airplane scenario in my book where you really have to take that oxygen mask that comes down from the ceiling and put it on your face first before you help somebody else. You really do need to take care of yourself because mental illness can be so draining and suck the life out of a room and out of a person. And a lot of people do get compassion fatigue, unfortunately. My therapist once told me he had it, which was oh wow, a terrible thing to hear. Yeah. I mean, how? what was your reaction? I think I cried. I I was, it was a really tough time in my life and he was really there for me, but um, you know, they're human. They, he put up with a lot from me. So I think I've been suicidal and it, it hits people hard when you're suicidal. Yeah. Now, when you talked about don't fix me, I'm not broken. How do you feel in terms of when people come into your life and they try to manage you or you know how would you describe it um well mostly it's men i've had a lot of boyfriends who tell me you know who try to take control of the situation and fortunately i found when they start to educate themselves about the illness they become much more useful to me because 
that oh, good. play a role that I can really, um, I can really embrace. They, you know, as I said before, they'll tell me, I think you might be getting manic or the most important thing they do is they hold on to hope for me. Remind me that, look, you're depressed. You just have to make it through to Thursday. You're going to get better. It's going to pass because you don't, when you're depressed, you don't believe it's ever going to change. You think you're stuck this way forever, forever being, you know, the biggest word in your vocabulary. So having people that tell you there's a tomorrow and you're going to be different is, is huge. Family and friends can make all the difference in the world. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you have uh, in instructions for use. Relationships are simple. Just do this. And these are some great tips. Let a depressed person be depressed. Educate yourself about the illness. Appreciate the unexpected advantages that bipolar disorder bestows. Uh, remember there's a tomorrow like you were just talking about. Talk to us about appreciation because I think like sometimes with my daughter, she's like, oh, I hate my brain because it, it, I can't do certain things and I have trouble with math and I can't learn choreography. And it's actually interesting because I was looking up a definition of NVLD recently and it literally said, has trouble with da learning dance moves because she wanted to try out for show choir, but her brain, it just, it, you could show her again and again, it just doesn't do that. So, but you know, but I'm like, no, don't hate your brain. You are creative and kind and interesting and you bring in different perspective than other people it can be challenging. So I, I'm sure you, I wonder, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but if you've gone through that with yourself. Completely. And, and the way you describe your daughter is, is so apt because while there are a lot of disadvantages, um, I often get asked if there were a pill, a magic pill you could take to get rid of your bipolar disorder, would you? And I don't think I would because it, really has enhanced my creativity. Um, people with bipolar disorder, there's a high correlation with intelligence. And I, there's something about that outsider's perspective, particularly if you're a writer, that's really interesting and helpful, I think. Um, you see the world in different ways. You see it very intensely. I experience things very intensely and I realize not everybody does. It's taken me years and years to realize that, wow, there's something good about that. You know, this, I see the world in saturated colors a lot of the time and, and where a lot of people might see in shades of gray and, and that's kind of lovely. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to see through her eyes, things that I wouldn't notice or because she pays attention to all the details. And it is, it, I mean, it has its challenges, that's for sure. But there is something, there's a richness to, I think, right. when people's brains are wired a little differently. And and uh, I think being neurotypical can be kind of boring. I call them the normals. So. Oh, normies in the mental health world. Well, you know, going back to anxiety, uh, I love this. It isn't, quote, unquote, just anxiety. Despite its harrowing nature, anxiety seems to be the least respected of the mental illnesses. Why do you think that is? I think because so many people have anxious thoughts or have anxiety about things like a bill or job performance, whatever. We're used to experiencing that pale shade of what people go through with chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety 
or clinical anxiety is like doom is just sitting on your shoulders and it's it's not attached to anything i mean you can be anxious about something but the the chemical process of chronic anxiety is is just free floating and free floating dread which is a terrible place to live just the worst i think in some ways anxiety is almost worse than depression because it just you feel nauseated you feel like you know you're going to die it's another one that has physical components to it well i think i say in my book that um anxiety can be very difficult to be around i have a dear friend who loves me to pieces but if i tell him i'm anxious today he will that's it he will appear for a while because he knows what i'm like i i can be very uh all consuming when I'm just I'm just desperately trying to get reassurance from people and it just it doesn't it doesn't come from other people it has to come from yourself ultimately and that's that's very hard what was that again that where does it hurt I'm going to try that tell me where it hurts tell me where it hurts yes the other thing that really seems to help with with anxiety I'm just learning this myself. It's been sort of another quest is self-compassion. You don't have compassion for yourself when you're anxious. You think you think very badly of yourself because you can't seem to function like other people who don't worry about when dinner is going to be or um, you compare yourself constantly to other people and their seeming ability to just get by in the world without these terrible feelings. So having some compassion for okay my brain is wired a different way and this is what I go through maybe I can't do dance moves you know that thing um yeah that's my new quest is self compassion i think Oh, I love that. That is so important. In your last part of the book, Troubleshooting, you have bad coping skills. And that it's interesting. You say researchers agree that it's very common for a person to use more than one maladaptive coping method. Things like isolation or not setting boundaries. Um, Things that, you know, things that you do to try to get by in the world that really don't work. And isolation, as we've all discovered, is not a good thing. It's horrible. It's what you go to. It's your go-to when you're depressed, which is really weird because it just doesn't make you feel good and it and it backfires. We're all we're all learning that this right now. Do you think it's because you don't want to be bothered by people who are going to be insensitive and have to deal with their crap on top of you already? Or do you think it's just a natural instinct when you get depressed or I'm just curious. I think it's interesting. It's really a primitive instinct almost there. I I think I write about this, that there must've been some, some caveman who went, you know, into his own little cave to hide when he didn't feel good. Cause I think it is a very primal response to depression. Yeah. I, you write here alone feels safe. It asks nothing of me. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is because I can't move, do anything, and I can't talk either. So uh, all of it is just this sense of 
I don't want to be left alone, but I want to be alone, if that makes any sense. I don't want people to forget about me and not check in on me. I really want them to check in on me. That's so important. It can make a difference. Just to, uh, you know, I love you, this will pass text or email can really take me out of suicidality even and, you know, onto the path to recovery. People don't realize how essential that is when you're really depressed, you get that text. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Looking in your troubleshooting as well, you have bad bedtime stories, self-blame. You write, apparently I still didn't handle the stress very well. People have to read the story. I'm not going to give it away. But then you write, the shame of that phrase spun around and around in my head until I finally realized that the greater, greatest stressor of all wasn't my ulcer or even my bipolar disorder. It was a story I tell myself about myself, the words I elected to use, the truths I chose to believe. There, my, This book is so powerful. Oh. I mean, it's, wow, that just... Thanks, Lisa. Wow. Sure. It's it's great to hear it read back to me. Thank you. I mean, you're not only an incredibly gifted writer, and I know you've had, you know, I, I'm assuming you've worked hard, obviously, but I think you have a gift <laughs> that you've honed your craft, yeah. but also your openness. But I mean, that's really, it's just powerful. It just really hit me. Your book really, really did. And, and how that's so hard to get out of. This is where self-compassion comes in again, because those 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 bedtime stories we tell to ourselves right before we're falling asleep those are the bad ones those are the ones we have to watch because i personally think um a lot of people are having bad dreams right now yes i have yes we all are me my husband and my daughter every night i'm usually homeless and my family is gone and i'm trying to find a place to stay and nobody wants to take me in and i have nowhere to go and it's really scary. I'm hungry and I'm tired and yeah, it's, it's terrible. But anyway, go on. Yeah. So I, I think it's because we're the last thoughts we're thinking before we go to sleep are these, you know, negative self-criticism type monologues that we carry on with them ourselves. And we just, we stop telling those bad bedtime stories to ourselves and maybe I'm, I don't know. I'm hoping it will improve the quality of my dreams because I'm really sick of my bad dreams. Oh God, me too. Me too. Now, how have you developed self-compassion? This has been a question therapy. It really has been. My therapist has been after me for some time and I always thought it was kind of, yeah, just give me a pill and I'll fix it. You know, I didn't, um, I didn't really give much credence to it until I actually started to do it and I felt better. Um, so I can credit him for that discovery. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, there's some great books on self-compassion. I'm forgetting the woman's name. If I remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. But she wrote a great book on self-compassion. It was years ago. And it, it it's something that we all need to work on. We're so quick. It's so easy for us to go to like, oh, you screwed up. You're such a dummy. Like, boom. Instead of like, oh, I'm a really good person and I deserve love. And I think affirmations are helpful, too. Well, Terry, you're amazing. I mean, I the book is incredible. I, I think the work you've done and putting yourself out there, I really admire when people share their stories because then it helps. Again, the book is Modern Madness and it is just so good. So, so good. Wait, I want to get the whole title. Hold on. Modern Madness and Owner's Manual, Terry Cheney. Terry, where do we find you? 
because you're just such a gem. Well, I have a website at www.terrychaney, that's T-E-R-R-I-C-H-E-N-E-Y.com. My email is on there and the book is available on Amazon or your independent bookseller will get you a copy if you if you ask them. Now, before I let you go, I should ask you, you've had some TV shows developed based on your character or based on your story. Talk to us a little bit about that. I meant to mention that before. (laughs) This was amazing. I wrote a modern love piece for the New York Times. This was right before my first book, Manic, was released. And that was back in 2008. And then in 2019, I get this call that they want to make a TV show out of the Modern Love column for the New York Times. Oh my God. Okay, I have to watch that. I've heard it's great. It's so good. It has eight episodes, and Anne Hathaway plays me like a gift from God to begin with. They were very concerned about making it an accurate representation of mental illness. So they let me consult, and I got to talk to Anne and to the director. and she just nails it. I mean, it's so, it's such a wonderful episode. She dances and sings when she's manic and she's so great at it. Uh, but I'll tell you what she really nails is depression. It To this day, I have a hard time watching a particular scene where she breaks down in depression because she's just a really good actress and, and they got it right, which few television or movie depictions of bipolar disorder really feel right to me. And this one did. So I was, I was very happy with it. Oh my God. Well, it's on my list. Now it's on the top of my list. You deserve the best. I mean, you put yourself out there, you share your story, you help other people. I'm so glad. I'm so happy for you. I, would love to talk to you anytime. I want to thank everyone for listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. You can follow us on social media at Andrea Donsky, at Lisa Davis MPH, at Naturally Savvy. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Youth Theory is a Southern California lifestyle brand that is on mission to inspire wellness in all. With its line of high-quality, efficacious health and wellness supplements, Youth Theory has developed a product for every stage of life, Whether you are looking to enhance your daily beauty routine with a high-quality collagen supplement or looking to enhance your immune system, U-Theory has something right for you. From farm to retail shelf, U-Theory is also committed to quality sourcing and best-in-class manufacturing practices, as well as giving back to the community. Learn more by visiting online at www dot utheory.com mention code savvy20 and receive 20% off your order during the month of December 2020 remember December 2020 only you theory made it all for you